This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show, your home for open, honest, and provocative conversations. Hey everyone, I'm Megan Kelly. Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show and happy Independence Day, America. Here we go into another July 4th weekend, and I hope you're looking forward to it as much as I am. I feel like we need to celebrate America, especially right now, right? With all the America bashing going on, those of us who love our country. My anecdotal experience has been that more and more people are having big 4th of July parties, making a point to celebrate what we stand for here in this country. Uh, People are starting to fight back against the America bashers who don't get it or just are willfully blind to it, to the magic of what we have here. And uh, I am one of them. We're, We're actually having a big, big bash and I can't wait And I do believe that the majority of people in this country understand how lucky we are to live here, to have been born here. You know, what a what a fortunate circumstance of our birth to have wound up of all the places in the world here where liberty matters, where freedom is an ideal that's written right into the founding documents uh, of our country. So today we have an interesting show for you. We've got um, we've chosen sort of three of our favorite stories, and we're calling these American stories, that relate to our country. And I think you're going to love, you, I know you're going to love all these guests, and they're you know, sort of going to give you a feel for where we are right now as a country, um, it being July 4th weekend. It's basically three of our favorites out of our 120 plus episodes. And a bonus for you, you're actually going to get to meet our team too. All of those writing nice letters about Canadian Debbie, <laughs> you're going to get to hear from her directly today. Uh, along with the rest of our team, who I'll introduce to you shortly. But before we get to our guests, I just want to I just want to read you this. Okay, we're in preparation for our Fourth of July party. Um, we're putting together a reading of the Declaration of Independence. I recommend you do the same. Um, I'm actually thinking about Amazon priming some like colonial wigs. <laughs> I don't know. I'll get back to you on whether that happens. But anyway. Um, we're going to have a reading of part of the Declaration of Independence. I mean, they really go on about how bad the king is. That's kind of outdated. Um, but I'll, I just want to read you the very, very beginning because it's so great to go back and read these things, isn't it? Like the Gettysburg Address, uh, the preamble to the Constitution, the Declaration. So this is what this is what July 4th, 1776 was all about, the Declaration of the Independence of the United States of America. And it was game on to fight for it at that point. And here it is. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, 
and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. And here we go. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government. And on and on it goes from there. Just so beautiful, no matter how many times you read it. And I was reading up, you know, it's like Thomas Jefferson was the chief architect and he and John Adams were at each other's throats for a long time when they were running for office. I mean, they sort of helped found the country and then went into partisan politics against one another. And then when they were much older and getting close to death, they started a series of correspondence with one another and managed to reconnect and managed to remember their brotherhood as founders of this extraordinary experiment called America and people who fought for a cause that would change the course of billions, would change the course of life for billions of people on this earth. Think about it, right? These two guys. And do you know, you may remember this, do you know they, they died on July 4th, the, the July 4th, 50 years after 1776, July 4th? I mean, it's just, it's pretty extraordinary. You want to feel good about the country? Go back and read some of these documents. Go back and, and read some of the letters these two guys wrote back and forth, and it'll humble you as a human being. And before you do all that, take a listen to this show and some of our American stories. There is a common through line to the three sections that we've chosen to highlight for you today from three perceptive, brilliant Americans. Truly, that is not an overstatement. These are important Americans in the truest sense. Mike Rowe, Barry Weiss, and J.D. Vance. They all can see the challenge that we're in in this country right now. They can all see the flaws of America, of course, but they have solutions. And it comes from believing that America is and Americans are at the core good, special, and worth saving. We're going to start with Mike Rowe. We talked to him back in December for an interview that aired on New Year's Day of this year. And everybody knows this guy from Dirty Jobs, from so many great shows highlighting the sort of Americans that don't usually get highlighted on TV shows. It's why he's been so successful. But Mike does not often get into politics or policy. So our exchange was pretty extraordinary. And here we're going to talk about safety, about patriotism, about socialism, about curiosity, and about Americans who rightfully feel, as Mike says, like liberties and livelihoods are being transformed under their very feet. That's coming up. But first this. We've gotten incredibly risk averse and, and risk is not inherently bad. Risk can lead to great reward. Sometimes you can fall flat on your face. Sometimes you can break the arm. But in my experience, usually succeed or fail, you emerge the better person for having taken it. If safety were truly first, if safety were truly first, what company would be in business? You know, if safety were truly first, our, our cars would be made of rubber 
They would not mm-hmm. expe- exceed speeds of 15 miles an hour. We would all wear helmets and we would eliminate left-hand turns. There'd if be you no did more that, liquor stores? No more liquor stores. Look, the things we could do to save millions of lives every year are manifold. We don't do those things because we've made a calculation and we've decided that the risk, and by the way, it's not even a risk. We've decided from an actuarial standpoint that the certainty of 35,000 automotive deaths in the coming year, the certainty of that is a fair trade for the ability to come and go as we like and drive our vehicles at the posted speeds and so forth. It's, it's a bargain that we made. 690,000 people died last year of heart disease. We could stop a lot of that by dramatically changing the types of foods we sell and implementing a mandatory exercise program. We're not going to do that because 690,000 deaths is a fair trade for the freedom to live the way we want to do. Now, people don't like to say that out loud, but how else can you conclude when you look at the reality of the data? 10 million people died of cancer last year. They're going to die this year. 10 million people starved to death. You know, I read something the other day, and I maybe you can verify it, but it, 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 seems, it seems real. It seems in multiple places. The CDC has concurred that the number of starvation deaths likely to occur as a result, not of the disease, but of the lockdowns, Mm-hmm. will be between 80 and 100 million around the world because the logistic chain has been destroyed because trucks can't get where they need to go with the food. This is what the Red Cross is saying. This is what a lot of organizations are saying. <laughs> we just have no real understanding of the unintended consequences on a global level of shutting down the most powerful country in the world and every other country for that matter. It's well, going to the, be mind-boggling. Think about the split in how people are coming down on these harsh shutdowns. And it does tend to be, you know, the, the media seems 100% behind them. Um, and sort of the liberal elites seem to be the ones shaming others who tend to be more working class, more dirty jobs kind of people who say, I'll take the risk. I want to put food on my table. I'll, I'll do what I need to do to protect myself and my family, but let me work. Let me work. It's not the media people who are going to lose their jobs. You're not going to lose your anchor job on CNN because there's a shutdown of bars and restaurants and other industries, as you point out, that are deemed non-essential. And yeah. um, like it, it to me, it seems it does seem like a class issue. And, I, you know, I think the dirty jobs are the noble jobs where you really do get your hands dirty and you're you're in the street all day and you don't mind it. And you're, you have a certain mentality of my life may be risky and it may be dirty and that's okay. And, and sometimes you get hurt. Sometimes not the perfect result happens. Sometimes it isn't perfectly equal back to your other point. Yeah. And that's the way America is and used to be. I don't know, Mike, I, I think maybe you're right. Maybe they've overstepped to the point where there's going to be an uprising. And and I do think the political messaging is playing into this because that same group of people, many of whom voted for Donald Trump, has been told for four years that they're awful, <laughs> that they are horrible, that they, because they support this guy who seemed to reach out to them and say, I'll fight for you, 
not only are they just, you know, dumb and stupid and not worthy of celebrating, but they're racist. They're sexist. They're xenophobic. God, it's the old. Look, this is a big generalization, but I do find some some truth in it. By and large, my my friends on the right will look at my friends on the left and conclude that they're mistaken. And my friends on the left will look at my friends on the right and conclude that they are evil. And there's a big difference between being wrong and wicked. And so that is an unfortunate way to set the table. And the word deplorable was an amazing choice to make. And one of the truest things I think that was ever said, maybe not intentionally, I'm sure she'd like to have that one back, but man, that set the table. And when Hillary Clinton called half the country deplorable, half the country listened and, and they believed her. And so, you know, ever since, I mean, that was one of many, but that was certainly a moment where people looked around and said, wow, there's a line, (laughs) there's a line in the country and it's being drawn Mm -hmm. as we speak. Am I deplorable? I'm not, you know, people, I mean, I know a lot of people who ask themselves that question. So, you know, it's a, it's a heck of a thing. And do you think um, we're, do you think we're, we're losing? Cause I think after Trump was elected, people started to see that, you know, I think some of my liberal friends started to see, okay, there, there, we seem to be getting a message from, you know, the work, working class workers of America that we need to pay some attention to them, that not every policy can be to please the chamber of commerce. Right. And then that was a Republican yeah. problem. But I think sort of the more elite started to say, OK, let's listen. But now now just people are angry and they seem to be I don't know when they, they're looking at these Trump voters and the white working class and the black working class. They seem to be saying something very different. Yeah, I think it has to do with I don't know. It's just like last week I interviewed J.D. Vance and we were talking about his the, the, the movie based on his book, Hillbilly Elegy, that's come out. It's getting mm-hmm. killed, killed in the reviews, which was completely predictable. Yeah. But the, I read those reviews and I think the movie was great. And I think, you know what? It's OK to it's OK to go after deplorables again. And it's and it's not OK to humanize them as he does. Look, Megan, it's it's that's just straight up hubris. You know, it, it, I've spent the last nine months working from home and and prospering. And I know that. And I know a lot of people haven't. So therefore, and for no other reason. I can't mouth off about a whole lot of things that I might have an opinion on because I've been able to work. You know, the CNN and the Fox News anchors have been able to work and yet they have opinions and they and they just can't help but share them. And mm-hmm. so it's 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 appalling to me the lack of self-awareness among so many people who have a platform. And look, I've been accused of it too. I suppose I'm guilty from time to time, but by and large you know, I try to stay in my lane and I try not to get over my skis with all this. But do you remember when the smoking thing really tipped when 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 public sentiment really, really once and for all and forever turned against the cigarette industry? I I think it was around the issue of secondhand smoke. I I think when people realized that it wasn't their decision to smoke was not necessarily the proximate cause of them getting smoke into their lungs. And when that happened, 
right? Secondhand smoke became a thing and it became a deadly thing. Part of what's going on right now, I think, is that our breath has been deemed to be secondhand smoke. The mask argument is no longer about whether or not I get to choose to assume a certain level of risk vis-a-vis my decision to wear or not wear a mask. It's, oh, you selfish bastard. You're not wearing a mask. Therefore, you're filling the air with your own toxic breath and you're going to kill grandma. Um, And that, you know, I understand that argument. It's the exact same argument I heard persuasively made around why cigarettes ought to be outlawed. Unfortunately, we're not talking about smoke. We're talking about breath. And we're talking about the fact that millions of viruses exist in a drop of seawater. And the air is filled with things. The, the world is filled with things that can kill us. You know, we live in a desperately dangerous place and nobody's getting out of it alive, you know. But this new thing, this new thing has come along and the idea that somebody can breathe on us and infect us with a disease that has a 99% survival rate, if you happen to be under 70, has for some reason petrified us to the point where we're simply not thinking rationally. And, um, you know, sometimes things just have to go splat before they get better. And I don't know what that means in this case, but we've just seen a lot of rioting. We've seen a lot of protesting. And I understand why it happened. We could see that again times 10 if, if this goes too far and people well and truly believe their liberties and their livelihoods and their country is being transformed under their feet. I'm fascinated and, <laughs> and a little frightened by what could happen. Can, let's talk about freedom for a minute. There, um, there was a poll that recently came out that said it was talking to young people. Um, as we've seen a lot with young people, the, the rise in support for socialism is spiking. This this is actually not particularly new. A lot of a lot of young people when they go to these universities and they get told about how wonderful the Communist Manifesto is, they suddenly say, "Oh, it's a good idea. I'm going to be a Marxist." Sadly, that's the truth. But then they tend to grow out of it. But anyway, mm-hmm. um, the other the, the the other stat that jumped out at me from this survey was that only 44 percent see the flag as representing freedom. I mean, mm-hmm. that to me is nuts and yeah. a little scary. Like the just the erosion of patriotism and love for the country. What do you think? I think that uh, I think that's symptomatic of something. You know, I don't think it's a problem in and of itself, not to minimize it, but I just think there's something under it, you know. And I guess maybe it's maybe it's curiosity. Maybe we're less curious than we used to be. You know. I mean, and maybe I'm just saying that because I work for the Discovery Channel and satisfying curiosity is their mandate. And so I I tend to look at everything through the lens of you're either interested in it, curious about it, or persuasive, you know, but you can't be persuasive until you're informed and you can't be informed unless you're curious. And if you think socialism is a good idea, well, then persuade me. And if you can't persuade me, 
it's because you don't know anything. And if you don't know anything, it's because you're not curious enough to go around the world or read and, and, and make, make a persuasive case for socialism. Do that. I, I say that every day to people who, who take that view. I like to think my mind is open enough to be persuaded. It's just that I can't find a single example in the history of the whole world where socialism has worked. And no, I don't want to hear about Denmark or Sweden. That's not socialism. That's, that's a kind of high-tax capitalism. Um, I'm, just a, I, I'm standing by. You know, I'm standing by to look at the study and to, and to hear a case for it. And it can't just be, well, capitalism bad, or look at, look at the bad things that happen in a cap. Capitalism is, is not perfect. In fact, there's a lot wrong with it. I've just looked around and for the life of me, I can't find a better plan. I can't, I can't find a, I can't imagine of a single thing in the history of the world that has elevated more desperate people up from poverty than capitalism. It's, it's one of the great success stories of all time. And conversely, socialism has got to be one of the greatest and most impressive failures of all time. The guy from Whole Foods just wrote a terrific book. John, uh, what's his name? Is it John McKay? Mm-hmm. John? Uh, yeah, Mackey. Mackey, right. Conscious Capitalism was his first one. He wrote something called Conscious uh, Leadership, I think, is his second one. But, you know, he makes this point, you know, the evidence demands a verdict and there is no shortage of evidence to make a case for capitalism uh, or a case against socialism. Or you could say it the other way too, but you have to look at the evidence. And it's, to me, it's just, it's just overwhelming. We're not a perfect country. We don't have a perfect system. The constitution is not a perfect document. The flag has evolved just as surely as the Bill of Rights has. It's changed. Its complexion is different and so forth. We're, we're a work in progress. But to affirmatively look at the iconography, um, the symbols of our country, and to then just lean back and evaluate the decisions made by our ancestors and look at them through the lens of modern sensibility, that is the height of arrogance, in my view, and the very definition of an incurious mind. It's, 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 a, it's a statue to laziness, is what it is. This is the thing, for me, the biggest difference, and again, I, I, I keep qualifying this in a stupid way, you know. I have many liberal friends. I really do. My best friends are, are very liberal. And just the other night, we were sitting around socially distanced, naturally drinking beer in between the moments where we lowered and raised our mask. Uh, (laughs) And, you know, I said to a group of my friends, it's like, it's amazing what we agree on. In fact, I can't think of really a single big issue whose outcome we, we wouldn't all like to see. It's just a matter of process. And in a general way, if I'm going to say something critical to you, I would say that you're impatient in the same way the millennials are that we talked about before. You look for shortcuts. A high minimum wage is a shortcut. Uh, rent control 
is a shortcut. Now, we'd both like to see people paid fairly. Not of, none of us want to see people evicted from their homes. But if you look at the policies that are either popular or not popular, then I think you can, in a very general way, say, well, that's a shortcut or it isn't. Um, I think, as I understand it, socialism is a shortcut. Capitalism is not. And capitalism's messy because there's competition and people are going to fail. Good people are going to fall short, you know? Uh, and so, again, it's well-intended people can disagree over the way to get to a place, you know? But the place that we're all trying to get to, and I take some hope in this, is by and large the same. So what are we arguing over, really? It's process, you so know? Two, po two points on that. One, I, I agree with everything you said, and I also think you could expand it to what's happening right now, the discussion we're, happening in the, in the, we're having in the country over race. I think most people want the same thing, equality, love, support, non-judgment, opportunity. Uh, but there are real disagreements, I think, in particular between Republicans and Democrats on how we get there. How, how do we get there? Right. You can just go back to the disputes we used to have over affirmative action. Now it's morphed into disputes about, you know, should you be doing what Robin D'Angelo wants you to do or should you be doing what Professor Glenn Lowry of Brown University wants you to do? But everybody wants equality and opportunity and, and love and support. You know, it's just but what we do in today's day and age is demonize anybody who doesn't see the root there the same way we do. And well, and yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I, uh, look, uh, to me, the entire race thing, and I'm going to really oversimplify this, um, but isn't the goal of the entire conversation to become a colorblind society? I mean, well, it used to be. It seems like ultimately the best world we could hope to live in would be a world where people look around and truly do not give a tinker's damn what color your skin is. So <laughs> it's a great example because every thoughtful person I know loves that world. We don't, you know, we imagine a world where we don't see color, but everything we seem to do in order to get to that place is accentuate color. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it, it, it's just a fundamental tautology, I think. I mean, how can you, how can you correct a problem with affirmative action, for instance? You know, how can you hope that the ultimate end result of that policy is going to get us to a colorblind place when the very definition of that policy precludes certain people from participating in it. Well, you know, the answer on these on, on this general argument is only white people would say such a thing, which isn't true, of course. And, you know, many black intellectuals are saying exactly the same thing. But sure. it's your white privilege that makes you say, let's not make color a thing. You know, the, these activists, white and black yeah. alike, these activists would say, um, it is an issue because America is systemically racist and we have no, no choice but to acknowledge that and work past that. And I would buy that 
criticism because I just made it to you a half hour ago when I talked about, you know, the hypocrites in the media who, 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 who can't see their own place of privilege and therefore hold forth with just delightful impunity. Um, what I'm saying here is that, okay, if you want to take everything I just said and say, well, that's easy for you to say, you rich white guy in the middle of your life. All right. I'll, I'll accept for the purposes of the argument being dismissed based on those things I can't control. But then what are you going to say to Thomas Sowell? What are you going to say to Tim Scott? What are you going to say to Candace Owens? What are you going to say to all of the black people who said the same thing I said? Well, you're going to call them Uncle Toms. You're going to criticize anything you don't agree with, not based on the substance of the observation, but on the color of the observer, which is the precise thing you're complaining about in the first place. And so right. if you can't see that, you know, then, then I'd go back to my earlier point and say, you're not a genuinely curious person. You're, you're something else. You're a, you're an advocate and that's okay too. You know, the world needs advocates, but it's important to know when you're being sold something and when you're going on an exploration, these people, they're not exploring the kind of society that, that I would like to live in a colorblind society. They're exploring ways to gin up conflict to keep their thumb on the scale and keep us more and more divided. You know, going back to something you said about, well, discovery and exploring, and that really is how you've spent your life. But you were saying maybe it's because you're, you work for the Discovery Channel that you have a different view of patriotism, America, capitalism, all these things. I think it's also because you spend a lot of time with veterans. And I do think you tend to love the country and see the flag differently if you spend a lot of time with veterans. How do you not? You know, I mean, 1% of the population wears a uniform. Every single freedom that we enjoy has been paid for in blood. People roll their eyes when I say that because it sounds like a talking point off of a monument, but it's true. Every single thing we have was paid for by somebody who either volunteered or answered the draft, or put on the uniform and paid the ultimate price. You're either impressed by that or you're not. If you're not, okay, but Jesus, what's it take to impress you? Incidentally, one and a half percent of our country are farmers. One and a half percent feed 330 million people three times a day. You're either impressed by that or you're not. If you're not, okay, but Jesus, I mean, what's it take? You know, our skilled workforce is a relatively small percentage of our country. But when you flick on the switch and the light comes on and flush the toilet and the poop goes away, you know, these are miracles. These are modern miracles that we all take for granted. And you're either impressed by that or you're not. So dirty jobs and somebody's got to do it and returning the favor. And the way I heard it, every show I've ever worked on is essentially the same show. I just changed the title every couple of years and their their goals 
are all interchangeable. I, my job, I think, to the extent I have one, is to tap the country on the shoulder every so often and say, hey, get a load of him. Get a load of her. Look at what's going on over here. So on returning the favor, you know, I get to do that a lot. And we've done 100 episodes and 14 or 15 have been based on veterans. Roughly the same number have been based on farmers. <laughs> and I didn't realize it when I was doing it. But when I look back on it, I, I think that I think that in a really general way, aside from our country's uh, fungible, ever-changing definition and relationship with risk, we have a similar fungible, ever-changing definition of gratitude. And if we're not a grateful people, and I say this, you know, on a on a micro and a macro level, if we're not fundamentally grateful for what we have then we're essentially rolling out the red carpet to a long list of feelings that that we're not going to enjoy you know i mean it's it's hard to be angry when you're fundamentally grateful it's hard to be bitter it's hard to be suspicious and resentful it's hard to be envious when you're fundamentally grateful for what you have but it just seems like because we're not as curious as we once were we don't have an understanding of history the way we should. And so we look around in relative terms and we don't see our country for the miracle that it is. We don't see our form of government for the singularly remarkable construct that it is. Instead, we look at Mount Rushmore and go, mm, probably be prettier without all those slave owners up there. You know, mm -hmm. it's an amazing thing, this ability. <laughs> to judge our ancestors based on what we know to be true today. Can you imagine, imagine 150 years from now, whose statues are going to be pulled down? Right. That will depend entirely on how woke and how enlightened that generation is. I mean, 150 years from now, what will the topic be that most mirrors the way we feel about slavery today. Mm. I don't know anybody who doesn't look back at slavery and go, oh my God, it's, it's the human stain. It's our great sin. What a terrible thing. What a demonstrably, undeniably terrible thing that was. What do you think 150 years from now, that generation will be saying the same thing about? Could it be eating meat? Could it be Abortion, capital punishment, anything that's in the headlines right now that seems controversial is going to be completely worked out 150 years from now, assuming we make it that long, including the environment. And when that generation looks back at us, how harshly, how harshly will they judge us? You know, if they judge us as harshly as we judge our ancestors, then whose statue is safe. Right. Who will be left standing? It, it reminds me of the, um, there was a report not long ago about the um, a, a famous, the a, the famous Martin Luther King biographer, this guy, David Garrow, who mm. um, got access to these FBI files from the 1960s studying Martin Luther King Jr. And some of what was in there was not good. 
uh, suggesting he had affairs with 40 women. This is a guy who won a Pulitzer Prize for his reporting oh, yeah. on King. Yep. Uh, that he stood by as a friend, raped a woman. Was not good stuff. Yep. It's never going to change what Martin Luther King did for That's the right. race relations in this country. It's hard. It's hard to sum up the character of any man or a woman um, by by diminishing it based on even one terrible thing. You know, people are complicated. And back then, when when, you know, Thomas Jefferson had slaves, sadly, so did a lot of other people. It just wasn't yeah. the same. And, I, and you're right. I think when it comes to even just the way we treat our animals today and, you know, when you think about what happens with the chickens, what happens with the cows and so on, it makes it hard. But right now we're not there. Doesn't make everybody who has a hamburger a bad person. It, it's so delightfully glib and easy. That's all I'm saying. You know, the, the, it's the laziness that allows us to take our standards and apply them to Alexander the Great or George Washington, or William the Conqueror, or Sally Hemings, or it, it you know, and, or Winston Churchill. Of course, of course, you know, if if you can't separate, look, Martin Luther King, when he talked about the the content of character, that idea deserves to be ruminated on and and unpacked, um, completely separate from the man as as all ideas do because all men are deeply irredeemably flawed mm -hmm. we're, who are we kidding we're all pigs we all know it <laughs> you know <laughs> we, we all know it it's just you know if if i if, see if myself we, as more of a cougar <laughs> hey not yet give yourself another 10 years <laughs> you're still a lioness megan Ooh, I like that better. Okay, I'll choose lioness over pig. But the point is, animals. We're animals. Yes, yes. I mean, look, I I do think there's a hierarchy of of species, um, and I do make value judgments all the time. And I and I I can't defend it, but I look at dogs differently than I look at chickens. Um, but who knows? 150 years from now, what the most mm -hmm. enlightened among us. Who knows how they're going to make sense of our inconsistencies, our proclivities, our flaws, our contradictions, our hypocrisies. This is the part of the show where we're going to talk about some of the interviews. You're going to meet a little bit of my team. Actually, all my team. Who am I kidding? Um, so we're bringing on the, the cast of characters as follows is Steve, Debbie, Danny, Natasha, and Abby. Steve's our EP. Debbie is basically our senior producer. She runs our news. Danny is our booker. Natasha is our editor. She's the one who does all the good recording and slicing and dicing to make me look good at the end. And Abby, you probably knows, know by now, is my assistant, little sister, mentor, nanny, um, all, all things above. So anyway, are you guys nervous? Do you feel nervous? Uh, yeah, I'm nervous. You know, you and Steve have the uh, upper hand on this, obviously. I keep saying, like, at least it's recorded. You know, if we suck, you can cut us out. Natasha only makes me look good, Canadian. Yeah, only you me. guys are on your own. Just Megan. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I'll kick it off to make life easy for you. I thought Mike Rowe, he he does have this special gift of having spent his life not just with veterans, but with real work, working class people. So he doesn't have his nose up in the air about them. And that's what people love about him. I was amazed that listening back to, to him, he used to work at CNN. You know, and, and it was a different era of CNN. He was like the after the dirty jobs. And then he went and did a CNN show that was similar. 
2018. Uh, he never felt less like CNN than, than when I when I heard, uh, you know, hearing back to, to that interview. Right. They've gone a different direction. And I don't know, I think he's he's the same kind of guy, but they they're they're a shadow of their former selves. I can never see them hiring him now. Right. You know, the whole interview, we really felt like it was one of the most open and honest conversations we ever had. You know, he wrote, like, wasn't afraid to get into anything, racism, classism, his blind spots, you know, like he was willing to like go there with everything, you know, it was hard to do, which is really genuine. And, uh, and then at the end of it, you, you know, I felt like, you know, we listening to it again, like, oh, very patriotic. Like I got to go plant my American flag in the middle of Toronto <laughs> My children go out there and salute it because <laughs> that's just how he makes you feel. Mike actually hit on like with his safety last, everything safety last and personal responsibility and assuming your own individual risk. We live in the DFW area, but if you go an hour outside of DFW in any direction, it's like an entirely different world. No one's wearing masks. Everyone's doing their own thing and they're perfectly happy. And they're all farmers and they just have done this forever. And they're not waiting for the government to tell them like when it's time to like do stuff. They're just doing it and living their life. And that's why I love Texas. Next up is going to be Barry Weiss. She's amazing. She's a powerhouse. And she's come on the show twice now by no accident. So the first time she came on was just after she launched her Substack publication, uh, and before she became a champion for and board member of a new organization called FAIR, uh, that I'm also an advisor to, the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism. And this organization is actually fighting all this racist nonsense that's being shoved down the throats of our children today in our school systems. Anyway, her voice is so necessary in our culture and in our current media landscape. And she speaks with openness and independence, which is why she was essentially pushed out of the New York Times last year, right? She's like, they wanted voices other than their normal far left people. They hired Barry, who was a liberal. She's a lesbian. None of that was enough. You can't be a lesbian and a liberal and an outspoken person for causes on the left unless you adopt all of their orthodoxy. And she hasn't. She's, she's an independent thinker. Well, that's why she left and in like a barn burner of a resignation letter. And she's a star. And here you're going to hear uh, just a little bit of how little incentive young Americans, and particularly those in the media, have these days to deviate even slightly from the norm. Because Barry talked to them. She talks to a lot of people. They, they write to her and she's pretty open about what she hears. And she's going to talk about how uniquely American it is to have challenging and honest conversations. Yes, everybody who listens to the show knows that. And heaven forbid, with people with whom you don't necessarily agree. Um, that can be really fulfilling, too. So listen to Barry. She's coming up in one minute. But first this. We talk a lot about the Internet and Twitter and social, but it's like, do people understand that we're living in an era in which you cannot make a mistake? You cannot make a mistake. And everything is captured for all eternity. And there's just so little incentive. Um, you know, I, I, I spent a lot of time talking to teenagers and college students who, you know, want to get into public life or want to be journalists or want to be op-ed writers or maybe want to run for office one day. And these kids rightly see no incentive to do so. And if they do want to, um, why would they ever uh, take any kind of strong opinion? 
why would they stand up for something unpopular? Mm-hmm. That's exactly it. That's what you wrote in your in your in your resignation letter saying there are it's very clear to the young people there are rules. One, speak your mind at your own peril. Two, never risk commissioning a story that goes against the narrative. Three, never believe an editor or publisher who urges you to go against the grain. Oh. I mean, don't you think it's true? I do. And it scares me because as I always say, the bullies have really won when when they're when they're in your head changing your behavior, right? Like it's never good to be bullied. But it's really scary when the bullies turn you into a bully of yourself, right? And that's what's happening. I want to read you two two really short things that summarize the moment I think we're in with regard to this. Mm-hmm. Um, I get emails every single day from people like this young journalist who wrote me, I never thought I'd practice the kind of self-censorship I now do when pitching editors, but I have no power to do otherwise. For woke, skeptical young writers, banishment and rejection awaits you if you attempt to depart even in minor ways from the sacred ideology. I used to live in China, where I worked as a foreign correspondent, and these dynamics are eerily similar to aspects of the Cultural Revolution. Mm. I had a student from Harvard write me the other day from his personal email because he was too scared to write it from his college email. To explain, And he wrote to me and explained that he self-censors even when he's talking to some of his best friends for fear of word getting around um, and that he, you know, projects what he thinks professors want to hear in his papers and tries to write um, answers and write papers with the perspective that mirrors their worldview rather than what he thinks are the best arguments. Like they sound like missives like smuggled out of a totalitarian society. I think one one thing I'm hoping, uh, given that, you know, the era of Trump, hopefully with him out of the picture and the clownishness and the, you know, just the grossness of, of a lot of what that meant, that we will be able to see this other threat with more clarity. Um, maybe that's Pollyanna-ish, but, but that's what I'm hoping for. You know, I, I, I hope you're right. I mean, I certainly hope that there's there are more people coming over to our side, but they're they're so smart the way these sort of radical leftists have seized control of so many aspects of our culture and our debate because the less people speak up and offer differing views the more people who haven't said anything yet think they're in the minority and that they can't speak up you know that one of the reasons i've been so vocal about this and i try to talk about the third rail stuff you know trans race sexism and misogyny um so bluntly is because I think it's American. <laughs> I think it's uniquely American. I've never been one to be ginger with my language, but I I think people need to be reminded it's not East Germany. It's the United States of America. You're allowed to talk about issues. Don't be shamed out of having the opinions that you have. Debate is the answer. Silence is the devil. And don't listen to the people who tell you your views are not okay and they're not shared because the truth is I forget the 75 million people who voted for Trump. You're you're of the left. The most I think most people on the left are with us. They're they're just freaking terrified. Yeah, and you know what? They're right to be terrified to some extent because how much does how much time and effort does it cost for me, you know, to go on Twitter and call someone an ism? It takes 2 yeah. seconds and nothing. Nothing. You don't need a mass group of people to to sort of ruin your reputation and take away your career and hurt your family. 
you just need a dedicated group of like 25 people because I'm watching it happen to a friend right now. Mm. And that scares people. And it's not just, you know, the fact that you could get, you know, kicked off of Twitter for saying, you know, for misgendering someone. Meantime, the Ayatollah Khomeini, you know, talks about genociding the Jews, but okay. Um, no problem. So it's not that. It's that it's not that far-fetched. And a lot of people in Silicon Valley have been talking about this over the past two weeks to imagine, you know, this sort of um, censoriousness coming, you know, to your email or to the browser that you use, or maybe even to the bank. And so I think what's going on right now is not just people protecting themselves for whatever the mores are in the current moment, they're projecting out to what they could be a year or two years or three years from now. Mm. And the other thing that I'm, but, but there's this sort of paradox because people are silencing themselves and closeting themselves in order to protect themselves. And maybe they will in the short term. What they don't realize is that in doing that, they're sacrificing not just themselves in the long term, but the whole thing that makes this country exceptional. Mm-hmm. Like, speak out now. If, if, you, if you get one thing from this conversation um, or one thing from my letter, my story, like, speak out now because it's not just about you and your mortgage or, you know, your professional advancement. It's about our ability to protect the things that have made this country, you know, the last best hope on earth. That's what's at stake here. And, and, and I really hope people understand that. You, you've written so beautifully about this. I mean, I, it's been a pleasure preparing for this interview because I got to read so much Barry Weiss. And one of the things you pointed out in the same vein is we're, what we're losing is liberal America. And that is not used in the political sense, not conservative versus liberal, but liberal ideals. And I just want to read this to the audience because there's so much. It was so hard to choose which ones I wanted to read because they're all so Megan, beautiful. Thank you. Oh, no, there's a, amazing. All right. So you, you're writing about how we've lost that. America used to be liberal. And you write not liberal in the narrow partisan sense, but liberal in the most capacious and distinctly American sense of the word. The belief that everyone is equal because everyone is created in the image of God. The belief in the sacredness of the individual over the group or the tribe. The belief that the rule of law and equality under that law is the foundation of a free society. The belief that due process and the presumption of innocence are good and that mob violence is bad. The belief that pluralism is a source of our strength. That tolerance is a reason for pride and that liberty of thought, faith, and speech are the bedrocks of democracy. The liberal worldview was one that recognized that there were things, indeed the most important things in life, that were located outside of the realm of politics, friendships, art, music, family, love. This was a world in which Antonin Scalia and Ruth Bader Ginsburg could be close friends because, as Scalia once said, some things are more important than votes. Oh, you don't even realize you've lost it until Mm -hmm. it's been chipped away and chipped away, and you have to ask yourself, why do I feel so bad? Why do I feel so sad? I know something's gone that I once loved. And, and th- this is it. This is what's happening. It's not about, I mean, listen, it's a little bit about critical race theory and that stuff, which needs to be stopped in my view, but it's much bigger than that. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that 
there, I grew up, you know, I write in my book that I, I feel like I grew up on a holiday from history and, and maybe other people listening felt that way too. That certain, that it's like my, my friend likes to joke that Americans are people that think history happens to other people. Like it, it <laughs> seemed like we were inoculated from some of the worst things that were going on um, in other times, of course, and in other places. And I think what we've learned over the past few years really, really clearly is that the veneer of civilization and the things that we maybe assumed were as natural as gravity, like the things you just read off in that paragraph, they're not. They need to be protected and defended and sacrificed for. And the things that make this country exceptional, you know, it's not bloodline, it's not, you know, soil, it's our ideas. It's our ideas. And when those ideas are under siege, and they are very much under siege now um, from, from lots of different directions, um, then America gets pulled back into the mean of history. And I think that's what we're living through um, right now. I think that you know, nothing less than those ideals that make us um, exceptional are, are under attack. And, you know, I, I think back to this summer and, you know, lots of statues were pulled down. Some of some of people that, you know, maybe deserve to be pulled down like Confederate generals. But among them were people like our first founding fathers, like Abraham Lincoln, and our second founding fathers, like Frederick Douglass. And, you didn't hear a lot of people that are supposed to be our intellectual and moral betters, you know, our elites offering a full-throated condemnation of that. And that's a problem. Like I, I see a, a direct connection between um, the vandals that pulled down Lincoln and the vandals that stormed the Capitol. Like both groups of those mm. people do not love what is good about America. Um, and I, I, I'm worried about, I mean, obviously I'm, I'm really worried about where we are. Um, mm -hmm. and I just think that, you know, it's, it's, we, we, you know, we've seen other countries sort of torn apart by, the dislocations of the 21st century. And it's hard to imagine that we would be one of them. And yet, you know, anyone that studies history sees that, you know, nothing lasts and we're, we're so young. And of course it's possible for things to come apart. That's why I think it is, you know, all of us that love what this country is at its very best, even with its flaws are obligated um, to, to defend the things that, you know, the vandals are trying to, to tear down. Right, the vandals beyond beyond the statues. They're they're trying to tear down a lot of things that we care about. You you try to you toy around with the name, you know, because I do think some of us have been struggling to define, forgive the rhetoric, but the enemy. Um, you know, like what what is this force against which we're fighting? You know, mm -hmm. I'll get out there and I'll talk about some of these absurdities that are being done to us, and I don't have a name for it. And and you. You've written, and I, and I quote again here, that American liberalism is under siege. There's a new ideology vying to replace it. No one has yet decided on the name for the force that has come to unseat liberalism. Some say it's social justice. The writer Wesley Yang refers to it as the successor ideology, as in the successor to liberalism. 
At some point, it will have a formal name, one that properly describes its mixture of postmodernism, postcolonialism, identity politics, neo-Marxism, critical race theory, intersectionality, and the therapeutic mentality. Until then, it's up to each of us to see it plainly, look past the hashtags and the slogans and the jargon to assess it honestly, and then explain it to others. And that's the, that's the challenge, right? To get our arms around what are, because it's like, if you vote, like, I, I can't stand critical race theory. I can't believe that this thing is making its way into corporate America and into the schools of America and that the, the shaming of people based on pigmentation has now become acceptable. And if you think it's okay, just because the people who are being shamed are whites, you haven't studied history to see how that pendulum swings back, right? Like that, this is not going to end well if we continue going down this route. It's creating more racism, which is what I hate so much about it. It's totally anti the MLK dream, which they're open about. I mean, the people pushing this stuff don't believe in the MLK theory. They, they don't believe they think if you're after content of character instead of color of skin, that's your racism talking. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you focus in on that, right, the response from the, the sort of the radical left is you're a racist. <laughs> like what you're trying to avoid is an education on the history of racism in America and how to combat it. You know, you need to read more Robin D'Angelo. And I yeah. think you and I can look at them and say, you're insane. Robin D'Angelo's book is racist. Her theory is racist. I'm fighting against racism. I don't believe we have the same goal. Get rid of racism if we can, or at least eliminate it in the pockets in which it still exists or work, to, work toward it. But we have a very different approach and very different, very deep disagreement on the methods. That kind of talk, that kind of language is not available to most people. They don't even understand that that's, that's the argument we're having. That's what's been so genius about this movement is that it frames itself as social justice, as the new civil rights movement, as anti-racism. Who wouldn't want to sign up for those things? But in reality, it is cynical. It is intolerant. um, It is neo-racist. It is neo-racist. The idea that some people are born into original sin or collective guilt because of their skin color and that other people have more claim to morality and truth because of theirs, um, I don't want to live in a world that believes that. I don't want to live in a country that accepts that as normal. Um, And one of the things that I think is so important is, you know, we've lived through the past few years, you know, we've seen just such a degradation of language and such a coarsening of language. And I think one of the things that's very important is for us to reclaim the language. Um, Mm -hmm. And That's certainly the case when it comes to critical race theory. Um, Again, do you believe um, in equality under the law? Do you believe that we should strive to live in a world where color doesn't matter? Um, Do you believe that, you know, the world is complicated and people should not be slotted into, you know, two categories, you know, victim and victimizer, oppressor and oppressed? And do you think that anyone that thinks the opposite of that is embracing something illiberal, intolerant and dangerous? You know, it's we have to do a better job of explaining it. And while there are people out there that are, you know, again, like it is hard to explain it because these are ideas that, you know, are quite can be quite jargony, come from um, the fringes of the academy, um, you know, post-structuralist, like we don't have to go into all of it, but I I know why it's hard for people um, to explain it, even though they're trying to to do a good job. And I think, frankly, it's the job of people like me and you um, to, to, to sound the alarm on it. 
even more than we already are. The one and only Barry Weiss. I mean, she is she's so important to what's happening in our, our culture right now, to the, the fight against all this nonsense. And she is totally fearless. Barry Weiss is somebody you want on your side. And by the way, team, um, the reason they hate her so much, like the left, the sort of the woke left, not the regular normal left, but the woke left hates her so much because she's so effective. She's so good. She's so articulate. She's got away with the words things. And, um, you know, when you listen to her, she's persuasive. It also was one of the more requested guests we had before we got her on. I mean, there was probably a few. There was like her, Sam Harris, Jordan Peterson. There was a, a small list of people that we just got from the very moment Tulsi. we launched. Tulsi, yeah. Um, but it, it was a kind of a perfect fit, I feel like. I mean, and she is she's someone who's going to be in in the orbit for a long time. She she came to New York and this is before she actually came on. And I uh, this is the first time I met her in person. And we sat down and several margaritas later, we were hysterical, laughing and crying and agreeing on a lot and just lamenting the state of our society, but resolving to do a million things together to solve it. And fair is one of those things that actually did work out. But I I would partner with her on anything because she's just she's a force to be reckoned with. And unlike yours, truly, she's organized and she'll make things happen. She has just enough of um, Abby in her to make her both a fearless warrior and a very well-organized party planner. Yeah, and this is this was one of her. The, well, actually, this was the first long form interview she gave after leaving the New York Times. And you know what I liked about the discussion, and it kind of it's where it kicks off at the beginning, and you talk about her being, you know, Daenerys Targaryen coming out with the flames going on behind her, and and you got, I guess, you kind of think that that's how it is, right? You think someone like Barry Weiss, like it would be so easy to fire off, you know, a, a letter like that, and to you know, leave the New York Times and with explosions going off. But, you know, she talked about how it was really scary. And I think that it resonates with a lot of people because it's a really scary time. Sad. Well, can I tell you something weird that's been happening to me in New York? Barry's profile, I think, is only going up. And she's become like some sort of weird litmus test amongst a lot of New Yorkers who you'll be talking to and and you'll be talking about politics or commentators. And people will say to me like, how do you feel about Barry Weiss? <laughs> it's like people who clearly are not listening to the podcast. And uh, I'm like, I love her. And then you'll be like, yes, me too, me too, right? Like they don't want to say they love her because if you say you love Barry, it's like saying you you love me or you love somebody who's on the right and she's of the left. So like they have to be careful about openly loving Barry Weiss. Meanwhile, I'm like, I, I can't get enough of Barry Weiss. I want to be the third person in their marriage. Like I, <laughs> I want to throuple with them. <laughs> You know, it's so weird because I'm a Gen Z millennial cusper. And this is Danny speaking, our booker. Sorry, keep going, Danny. And my friend, I, I have friends who are non-binary, who are on the LGBTQI, ABCDEFG, <laughs> uh, you know, spectrum. But then I have friends who are big MAGA fans. And I feel like, I mean, my friends and I were all in our early 20s. And we have open conversations about politics. And I think we all are just trying to figure out what the heck our beliefs are because we're growing up. I mean, we were in college when cancel culture started. And I think we're all just trying to figure out what, what is cancel culture? Like what, what was the world before cancel culture? Because we were, you know, 18, 19 when that started, like what do conversations look like before this? And we're still trying to figure out what our beliefs are and how to navigate this new world. It's going to be up to young people like you 
to fight back against the people who are saying you have to accept all or nothing, whether it's some diehard MAGA person who's like, you will not criticize the Trump or the diehard wokesters who are like, you will not express a different opinion than my own or your bad. J.D. Vance, I said when he came on, was literally my favorite interview at NBC. It's the piece of journalism that I did there that I'm most proud of. And you can see it on YouTube, by the way, the interview. But it's just it's a beautiful family. And I got to meet his sister, Lindsay, who is a star of the book and what became a movie. And um, I still think you should go back and watch it because I think it'll tug at your heartstrings in a way that'll be meaningful. Uh, Anyway, so we got him on the show and it was everything I, I knew it would be. You know this name because he's, if you haven't heard the interview, he's the the author of the massive, massive best-selling book, Hellbilly Elegy. And he's actually now finally really considering a move into politics, running for Senate in Debbie's home state of Ohio. He's got big, big money backing him. Um, Peter Thiel, the investment banker who backed Trump. Remember, he got kicked out of Silicon Valley, basically. He's a he's, um, really well-known investment guy. Anyway, he he employed JD in San Francisco for a couple of years and JD got out there and was like, what the hell am I doing in San Francisco? I don't, I don't like it. Moved back to Ohio, married Usha, who had clerked for the US Supreme Court, brilliant woman. And I think he's finally getting ready to make the move and we need him. We need more just like him in politics. Um, and we'll have him back on the show if he decides to announce anything. Anyway, he came on November last year. Uh, it was around the same time that the movie version of the book had been released on Netflix. And he's unlike anyone. He really, his personal journey is an incredible American story. Um, When he was on, we talked about the learned helplessness that exists in some parts of America, but also about his hope for Americans, because he has seen that those who say life's unfair and leave it there are not nearly as prevalent as those who say life's unfair And here's how I'm going to overcome it. The American dream, you could say. He's coming up. Don't miss this. One second, get an ad in, and then J.D. Vance. You talk about culture versus economics and the effect on a community and, you know, the absurdity of the learn to code message to these coal miners, let's say. Think about if they turned around, if, if, you know, Trump's administration turned around to Black America in Chicago and, you know, where you talk about blight, right? And said, learn to code. Yep. <laughs> the, the outrage that we would get in that message. You know, there, yes, we do have to talk about agency and willingness to get off the couch and fix your own life for sure. That's a, that's a massive piece of it. But we also have to be realistic about what the economics look like and what's really realistic and, and expecting of these people. And I just think you can't, if you can't do it with the black community, you can't do it with the white community. And what we're really talking about is people who are lower socioeconomic status and, and how yep. to lift them up. And, and you got to look at both of these things. What's their attitude and what's, what's potentially available to them. Yeah. There's, there's a, a sociologist who's actually a, a very liberal guy, but I've gotten to know him a little bit. And I, I cited him a few times in the book. His name's William Julius Wilson. And, um, you know, v- very much a guy on the left, but just incredibly thoughtful about these problems. And, you know, he's, he's been, I think, pretty influential in how I think about this interplay between cultural and e- economics. Because you know, you're right, you've got to take people who are sitting on the couch doing nothing, and you got to get them off the couch, you got to get them into good jobs, you know, hopefully able to support families, able to raise those families in stability and comfort, and then, 
you, know, you create a virtuous cycle from generation to generation instead of you know the vicious cycle that we sometimes have in families that are struggling with joblessness and um, and addiction and so forth. But you know, one of the things that's going to motivate people to get off the couch, of course, is the existence of a good job, right? That's an important piece of it, but it's not the only piece. Another thing that's going to motivate people to get off the couch is when their neighbors and friends are also getting off the couch, right? When you're in a community where there just isn't a lot going on, where a lot of people are doing drugs, a lot of people aren't finding good jobs, even the guys who want to go and work and find good jobs, it creates this sort of mentality where why try, right? I, I, I call it, you know, learned helplessness. Um, you know, hopelessness is a good way to think about it. But but if you want to actually improve people's lives, you can't just say, well, here's a money, here's some money, right? Here's here's a check from the government, spend it well, or here's a good job, go and apply. But you've got to create the community infrastructure uh, that makes it people feel like it's possible that if they try, something good is actually going to come from it. And, and they've got to feel pressure too. I mean, I, you know, I, I've certainly been. Um, I'm sure all of us have been in moments in our lives where we're feeling a little bit lazy, a little bit shiftless, unsure what we want to do. You know, one of the things that helps break you out of that pattern is somebody in your life saying, "Hey, you know, do something else here, right? Um, you know, go, go. You know, maybe it's maybe it's your wife who says you need to do the dishes or help out a little bit more. Maybe it's somebody in your family who says you need to go and, and apply to that job. You know, those things matter. But like, I think about my own life." And all of these little influences that helped get me on the right path, you take those influences away and it's just me trying to figure this stuff out on my own. And I think things just don't, don't go as well for me, right? If Mamaw wasn't telling me, you need to go get off your ass and apply for that job and work hard. If, if I didn't have, you know, my, my sister and my aunt and my mom saying, you know, if you want to have a good job, you may need to go get an education. If I didn't have people in the Marine Corps saying, you know, here's what you need to do. Here's how you need to apply for financial aid. Uh, here's how you need to sort of structure your life so you can actually succeed in school. You know, all of these weird little community influences are what I think the building blocks of success ultimately are. Um, and, and, and those, you know, that, that's sort of, as I see it, the interplay between culture and economics is it, it's not just the good job. It's also the full spate of community actors that make it seem both possible and available to you to actually mm. get off that couch and go do something. Um, and that's what's, you know, that's what's ultimately missing when you're, when you've got people um, who, who, who are, are really, really left behind and, and really don't see a path forward. I also think that's the thing that's missing the most is people in their lives who can actually help them. Right. It's, it's back to the old, if you can see it, you can be it. You know, it, it's, it's very helpful to see role models around you who have done it. But I also think this is one of the problems with identity politics, because the messaging from people who are obsessed with their gender, their skin color, their sexuality uh, is you, the reason you can't do it is because of these immutable characteristics. Like right. you can't, you, the American dream is not possible for you because the system won't allow it. And it completely takes away a person's agency. And and they do openly crap on the American dream. It's not possible for you. America yep. itself is not what people say it is. And this anti-American sentiment cropping up, I think, is another thing that motivates a lot of voters. But it's they're basically challenging the notion that anyone, no matter their circumstances, can achieve success 
in this country. One, one of yep. the things that I think is so beautiful about your book, your story, and the reason why many on the left hate it, <laughs> yep. is that you're, you, you're an example of it being possible, even under really tough circumstances, even for a kid who has almost no advantages other than a grandma and, and grandpa who really loved him and decided to give him a little tough love. Yeah. I mean, the thing I always ask people when you know, they, they talk about the structural and systemic factors that make it hard or impossible for people to achieve is, let's say you're absolutely right. Let's just say for the sake of argument that you're absolutely right. What good is that message when directed at a kid who's struggling and trying to figure out how to make their way, right? So I, I'm not one of these people who says that people, you know, says that, that sort of poor folks don't have any disadvantages. Like I can't possibly look at my grandma's life and my grandma's upbringing and say, you know, she had the same set of opportunities as someone who was born in uh, an upper class background in the 1940s in New York City. I think, frankly, she also had a lot of advantages, right? She had, I think, a lot of important cultural training that she wouldn't have gotten. But obviously, her life was hard. Uh, I don't, I, I don't know anybody who would look at my life and say, you know, JD had it easy relative to a kid born of privilege. But so what, in some ways, is the takeaway from that to tell a kid like me when I was 12 years old, your life is unfair, the deck is stacked against you, there's nothing you can ultimately do. So, you know, why isn't the message that I take from that ultimately, well, I should just give up then, right? If the deck is stacked against me, if there's no hope, then I shouldn't even try. And there's, there's just this weird strain of thought in American life right now where you can't hold two thoughts in your head at the same time. And, and in this particular moment, I, I think the two thoughts, or this particular question, the two thoughts that we have to hold in our head at the same time are, one, yes, life can be hard for people who are born uh, poor in tough circumstances. But two, it's still important for them to see that they have agency and that they need to try anyway, right? It mm -hmm. might not always work out. And we got to be honest about that fact. But the worst of all possible worlds is where people are just told, there's no hope. There's no reason to try. There's no reason to make anything of yourself. And I do unfortunately think that's the message that a lot of people on the left are ultimately giving uh, to communities like mine. I am, you know, my, you know, my, my grandparents were sort of classic blue dog Democrats. And I'm actually sympathetic to a lot of the arguments that folks on the left make about, you know, certain unfairnesses you know, especially when it comes to people who, who don't um, who, who don't have a lot of money, who grow up in traumatic homes, who grow up in abused and neglected environments. I don't think that they're wrong, that that creates special disadvantages. But you can't just encourage people to wallow in everything that's gone wrong in their lives. You have to be able to say, on the one hand, you know, we as community leaders, as policymakers, as media folks are going to try to make it a little bit easier for those who are disadvantaged to have a shot at the American dream while at the same time telling people who are struggling to achieve the American dream, it's possible. It is out there for you if you're, if you're willing to work for it. Mm -hmm. Well, I think the other piece of it too is once, once, <laughs> is once one achieves the American dream, the response, the collective response in, from the left in particular should not be fuck off. 
Like that's the one of the problems we're seeing is success has been so demonized in the country now. Even if you are self-made, just having it is a problem. You know, they'll they'll hold it against you. You've you've you must now see the rest of the country as less than. You must not be paying your fair share. You have yeah. to give more of it back. You know, and the less you give, the more of a miser and awful person you. It's like, I don't know that I. I just think we've changed the messaging from good for you. Maybe I could do it too. help me understand how to screw you. Yep. Yeah. There, there's definitely a way in which I, I think our country is really, I shouldn't say our country. I, I think that our leadership class is really uncomfortable with success and with people who have achieved success. So I, I saw this interesting poll just a couple of days ago and it was looking you know, just at Trump voters, college educated Trump voters versus non-college educated Trump voters. And it was, the question was, you know, do you think that it's possible for a person to achieve the American dream? And I think it was 71% of non-college educated Trump voters said yes. And I think it was, you know, 40% or something of the college educated Trump voters said yes. And it was true for the, for the Biden voters as well. I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was basically the people who didn't have college degrees were actually more optimistic about their future and more optimistic about the chances for the American dream than people who had gone to college. And I, and I think that's, because they haven't thankfully absorbed the message that their lives are hopeless just because they don't have all the advantages in the world. And that's, that's just an important thing. And I, I, I worry about our, our country's you know, inability to you know, try to uplift those who are struggling without treating those people as hopeless children who have no, have no agency and no, no responsibility. Um, you know, there's, there's Wait, the but can, famous, can I ask you something about that? Because I, yeah. I I wonder, is the other piece of that, the people who are college educated saying, eh, I don't know, is that, do you think, born of, I I made it, it's not that great. <laughs> like, I have to work my ass <laughs> off. I never see my family. I, the government takes 50% of my dough. Uh, you know, I, I kind of made it to the promised land and... Meh. What do you think? You know, I, I, I think there's, there's part of that going on. But the, the biggest, when I looked at that poll, what I took away from it is that if you're a working class American uh, versus a professionally educated American, a person with, with post uh, bachelor's education, uh, then you're, you're fundamentally living in, in two different media and information environments. And I, I do think that, you know, our universities uh, our elite media institutions have just grown pretty pessimistic about the American experience, the American experiment. And consequently, people who have spent their lives in those academies, in those media environments, I think they've just absorbed uh, that things are uh, more pessimistic and, and more, you know, more negative than a lot of working class Americans believe. Uh, I, I also, you know, I, I really do think that a lot of this is like, ideology ends up trumping people's ability to think because one of the more interesting dynamics is in, 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 in response to the book is that people who were, you know, really well-educated who are sort of the winners in American society, both in terms of their income and their prestige, they really wanted to project their own political narrative onto the book. And they wanted to sort of fit me into this box, right? So if like JD said this thing that I agree with, I'm going to ignore that. I'm going to only you know, attach myself to the things that I disagree with or, or vice versa, right? People would sort of 
you know, had either very strongly positive or negative views. And, and what I found, you know, is that working class Americans were actually better able to hold two thoughts in their, their head at the same time. They sort of got that I was, I was making both an argument about the fact that, yeah, sometimes life is unfair, but you still got to try to work against that unfairness and make something of yourself anyway. And, you know, I, I think that's just because people who don't grow up in a particular media environment are not constantly looking for alarm bells that a particular idea or concept violates one of their the sort of sacred right. tenets of their faith or All ideology. Right, and so they're I, just more open-minded. I think I predict with your movie, because the movie is now out about, uh, you know, based on your book, you, you're going to get slaughtered by the reviewers and you're going to get completely loved by the actual viewers. It'll be reviewers versus viewers, as we've seen in any film that, you know, that has an, a message like yours, which is the, the American dream may still exist. It may not be perfect. It may not be pretty, but it does still exist. And that even shines a spotlight on this group of people, you know, people in Appalachia, people struggling with the opioid crisis in a way that that isn't entirely about woke culture or victimization and how the country's bad. That's what we've seen. You know, it's, it's one of the reasons why Roseanne, the reboot was so successful, right? Like they talked yep. about these issues in a way that really resonated with real America, even though the people who wrote about that, the reboot were like, they're horrified. They're hor even before her scandal, they were like, this is horrifying. How, how could the show be succeeding? And I saw this already. There was one review by the Washington Post. That's, this is so perfect because that what their criticism of the book, the movie is that they, they really wanted it to be more woke. And, and this yep. is a quote from one of the reviews. Vance paints Appalachia as a near exclusively white space. Erased are black residents and their history in the region. Missing are the many generations of Native American communities. Ignored is a growing Latino population. Disregarded are Appalachians who embrace racial justice and acceptance of their LGBTQ neighbors. This is a personal story of your family. Why, yeah, why did you get into all that? Right, <laughs> right, right. Like, and, and can you imagine what a movie like that would look like? You know, where where you're trying to tell the story of a family, but you have to you have to actually talk about every other conceivable group, majority, minority, what have you, <laughs> and present them on the screen so that it satisfies this sort of woke obsession. It, it's, yes, with it's a little just no justice, no peace right? sign in the background. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 just yeah, it's it's just totally preposterous. Um, and you know, as it happens, most of my family voted for Donald Trump. Uh, my family is hardly politically monolithic. My mom, you know, who by the way has been clean for six years now, is, is doing very well. Uh, okay. Just just saw her a few days uh, just saw her a few days ago. You know, my mom voted for Jesse Jackson in the Democratic primary in 1984, um, and and then she's voted for Republicans and she's voted for Democrats since. I, I just think that there's this way in which Elite Americans want working class Americans to be more ideological and more woke than they actually are. You know, one of my favorite responses to the book or to the movie, I can't even remember uh, which at this point, uh, but is, is that, uh, you know, J.D. Vance doesn't talk enough about BIPOC, BIPOC, and LGBTQIA Americans in his sort of experience of Appalachia. It's like, okay. So BIPOC is Black Indigenous People of Color, LGBTQIA is lesbian, gender nonconforming, bisexual, transgender, intersex, asexual. And I read this and I'm like, 
you people are crazy. Like tr- truly <laughs> the authentic real Appalachians use these like 14 character pronouns every time they talk about themselves. <laughs> and, you know, I, I just listen to this and I think, who, who are you kidding that you think this is the way that Appalachians or frankly anybody else, black, white, brown, whatever, talks about themselves and their communities? This is a particular obsession of a particular upper class of Americans. And I think it's insane. Uh, but don't try to pretend that that's the real America because you want it to be. It just isn't. Right. A moment on the asexuals in the holler. It's not going to happen. You know, what, one, one, of my, one of my good friends, just a, a, a side, you know, he's sort of like a, a populist. He calls himself a populist Reagan Democrat. But um, he's he's a professor. I won't give his name because I don't want him to, to get fired. But uh, he's he's you know, he's he's a gay man, uh, you know, in his in his mid 50s, just a great, great friend of ours. And he sent me this tweet from Elizabeth Warren's campaign, a Twitter account back when she was still running for a president. And it was like something like, you know, we love all people who are intersex, asexual and two spirit. And this guy sends me this tweet and he says, look, man, we gay guys just wanted to be left the hell alone. You, mm-hmm. you can have your two spirits. <laughs> there's, there's something about just this bizarre way of discussing these issues that's alienating and dividing the country. I love that. I, I love that the the ripping on hillbilly elegy is, you know, you really needed to diversify your cast and, and the way you look back at your own hometown and add in a bunch of transgender people who weren't there in a, in a bunch of different races and ethnicities that weren't actually there when you were. They just need to do it. Everything needs to be woke. <laughs> OK. And now they're going after a Senate campaign. I mean, you know, the 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 idea that a populist message but being funded by billionaires. It's like Peter Thiel. I mean, you're not going to group him in with like, you know, your typical billionaire. I don't know how that is, you know, is some sort of is not allowed to to happen where where that, that could, could have a populist message. Yeah. Only the far left cares about stuff like that. It's like anybody running for office has to raise money. You know, they all have to raise money. It's not easy to put ads out and all that stuff. I want to know about the person. Is it a good person out there beholden to some dark corporate force. That's important to know. But Peter Thiel is like an investor across many properties. Like what if you're beholden to him? I I think you're beholden to sort of amorphous causes. I have something. I have two things that I thought about when I was listening to this. The first is he talks a little bit about the word prestige. I have never felt a desire for prestige. I thought it was so interesting. His focus on, you know, he was talking about like how he came. I mean, he is he's literally the American dream. Like he is obviously the American dream. And when I was listening to him, I was like, I never felt a desire for prestige. And I wonder where that comes from. And should I have a desire for prestige? This is why you became my assistant. (laughs) 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 I just feel like I... So well. (laughs) I don't know that. And like his other is other stuff about like learned helplessness, you know, like how we are learning helplessness in society. I also, when I hear that, I'm like, my, I have such a strong desire to make sure my daughters do not learn helplessness. Like I want the exact opposite. I want them to learn no helplessness. I want them to be the opposite of that. Well, I was going to say, so I've said this um, to our other teammates before about you, Abby. 
Abby's got the highest EQ of anybody I've ever met in real life. I it's off the charts. Like you just you can read people and situations quickly and accurately in a way that is special. And I think it's no accident to, that you don't feel the need for for prestige because you have your priorities straight. What is prestige? What is that? That's a bullshit word, right? It's like you love Kevin, you love your daughters, you love me. <laughs> anyway, but my point is like you've got your priorities straight and you put all of your energy into those things and you work hard, you work your ass off at your job, you do really well. That's what matters. Who cares how other people are looking at you and like prestige is it's almost like another word for created envy. And I love JD. I don't think that's how he meant that. But like, I also don't feel the need for that. Like, I feel the need to have a happy life, not to have people admire me. When JD was talking about the American dream and how it is possible and it's a beautiful thing to, you know, shoot for. And if you say that anymore, if you say like, oh, you know, I still believe in the American dream, you're almost like shit on for it. And it's really sad because this is an amazing country. And And saying that you believe in the American dream is saying you believe in your own individual agency to do whatever the heck you want. And that's really what we should be celebrating. And no one seems to want to celebrate Saying like America sucks is part of the American dream. You have the right to say that. Equality of opportunity is awesome. Equality of outcome is not your guarantee as an American. And in fact, the hard work and effort that goes into how one approaches any task in one's life is what makes inequality of outcome a reality and a great thing. Now, you shouldn't wind up in the same place if you phoned it in, if you didn't work as hard, if you didn't you know, spread as much positive energy, right? You, you shouldn't. And that's why the system does ultimately work. Not perfectly, but it does work. I also love what he said when he says, like, you know, the message that permeates our society is the deck is stacked against you and how bad that message is. Because if you're given that message, what, what is, there is literally no incentive to do anything better or work harder or to explore another avenue or see how you can get out of your current situation. Like what a dead end message. The deck is stacked against you. Like that's just not a good place to start. Do not go away because we have a special, special treat for you. Right after this break, we are going to bring you Daniel Rodriguez, known as America's tenor, the singing policeman. Daniel became famous after the 9-11 terrorist attacks when his rendition of God Bless America uh, became incredibly popular and he was invited to sing at several memorial events. Uh, I have had the honor of seeing him perform live many times and it will send chills down your spine. He has given us permission uh, to play his rendition of God Bless America for you guys. And um, if you don't already love Daniel, you're about to. Stand by. While the storm clouds gather far across the sea, let us swear allegiance to a land that's free. Let us all be grateful for a land so fair as we raise our voices in a solemn prayer. Prairies to the ocean. 
now, right? God bless America. Um, God bless America. Listen, have a wonderful, wonderful weekend. And don't forget to tune into the show on Monday because we have Brett Weinstein. He's been all over the news lately, getting a lot of uh, pushback on an episode he did on the COVID vaccines. And he kicked off YouTube and just Brett's all over the news these days. And I've been wanting to talk to him anyway. So we moved it up and we're going to have a fascinating discussion about all of it. Don't miss that show. In fact, by popular demand, because I think I see his name more than any other in our comments these days saying, get Brett, get Brett. So we got Brett. We're going to do it on Monday. And in the meantime, happy Independence Day to America, to all of you. God bless you. God bless your families. And God bless our beautiful country, the United States of America. Go Team USA. Thanks for listening to The Megan Kelly Show. No BS, no agenda, and no fear. The Megan Kelly Show is a Devil May Care media production in collaboration with Red Seat Ventures. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Here you are, BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, let me just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. 